to episode 2118 of Effectively Wild, the Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs, and I am joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Well, I've been consumed by a question for the past oh. couple days, and I think oh, it's my. a question that will segue into the first transaction we have to talk about. So here mm-hmm. it is. This was prompted by a tweet by John Morosi a couple days okay. ago. He said, the Twins plan for infielder Brooks Lee, number 18 Mm. overall prospect per MLB pipeline, to begin 2024 at AAA, GM Thad Levine told MLB Network Radio Today. Levine continued, quote, when he tells us he's ready to go, we're going to get him up to the big leagues, end quote. And I was wondering, what if prospect promotion worked that way? What if Mm. it was just a matter of the prospect telling the team that he's ready to go? (laughs) And as soon as he does, he says, okay, call me up. And the team says, okay, we were just waiting for the green light from you. Now you get to come up. Okay. So how much earlier do you think prospects would call themselves up? Now we should probably stipulate this might have to be limited to certain highly rated prospects. Obviously, if you're an org right. guy who's probably never going to make the majors on your own performance. Yeah, right. <laughs> day one. Ready, I'm ready. today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yesterday very, even. Very ready to make the major league minimum yeah. instead of the relative pittance <laughs> I am making now. Yeah. Even if they know they're not going to be good, even if right. that might be mildly embarrassing, sure. that's life-changing money, right? But yeah. what Definitely. if you're... Brooks Lee. So okay. Brooks Lee, he's a highly rated prospect. He yep. got to AAA last season. Yeah. He has every expectation of making the majors. So if you're someone like that, where you're not that far away, you do have some incentive to come up at the right time, right? Sure. Because A, you don't want to be bad. No one no. wants to be bad and embarrass themselves. And no. you could possibly hurt your standing if you came up too early and mm-hmm. were bad. I don't know if you could then get sent down again or whether you could veto <laughs> in this scenario. Right, but, right. Uh, yeah, that was going to be a question uh, I asked. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you can't have like a lifetime roster spot, but right. it's just you get to say go or no go. And then yeah. after that, Maybe if you don't do well, they could still demote you, but you get to say when you start. So if you're someone like he was a first rounder, I don't know offhand what his bonus was, but he was an eighth overall pick. You know, I'm sure he has uh, made a decent amount of money more so than someone who's not a high pick. Right. So maybe it's not quite as pressing to start making that major league money, but you got to be just raring to go when you're at that point. What? do you think would happen? Would most guys say, all right, let's get going? Or do you think they would have the restraint? Well, there'd be so many things to consider, right? You know, there's the the bit you're talking about where like nobody wants to feel embarrassed. 
But if we want to afford people the generosity of a self-aware understanding of their own talent, like, I think that that it wouldn't surprise me if a number of guys have a sense of, like, I've accomplished all I can here. You know, like, I need the next challenge. Like, I, yeah. there's no more that the AAA pitching can really show me about my swing, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's time to go play with the, with the big boys, uh, mm-hmm. as it were. So, you... Probably would average around like maybe a a, a half a season sooner um, okay. than than the big league club would if we assume that guys want to put themselves in a position to be called up and then like you know stay presumably mm-hmm. um, and I think that it would in instances where maybe the the team and the player have a similar understanding of the season in which their promotion should occur the considerations would be around you know some of the the deadlines and the calendar that matter for participating in the prospect promotion incentive program, being on the right side of super two, you know, stuff like that, where mm-hmm. you would, you know, if you're the the prospect, you're like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to get mine. You know, I'm going to make sure that assuming I am good enough to stick that I do that and that I, I do it in a way that is going to be the, the sort of most beneficial to me, either in an immediate monetary sense or uh, in an eventual free agency sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. And then you would, you would have been a couple of guys and I don't want to call them bozos because I think the, the instinct to get there and like realize your dream and and make big league money is like that's all very legible to me as sort of motivation but i think that there would be um some some guys who maybe have outsized belief in their readiness um who would go too soon and then they would learn hard lessons and then they would end up back in triple a and and then we would sort of have to see what they what they make of those uh lessons and what adjustments Mm -hmm. they're able to effect but i don't know maybe i'm giving more credit than is due but i think they have a a reasonably good sense of when they're ready you know if you're in low a working on your breaking ball recognition i i think even even a professional athlete even a young person even you know I don't want to say that they're all the same kind of, uh, you know, masculine, but like a macho guy, some of them are. Um, You know, I think that if you're like, wow, I'm still, um, I'm not laying off like a low A slider, you're not going to go. I I think it's time for me to see Degrom, you know, see what he's got. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that people um, have a sense of this stuff. It's hard when you are faced with your own failure to not feel that very innately and want to mm-hmm. avoid it. And you know, people delude themselves all the time. And we could record an entire episode about sort of the the complicated dance that these guys have to do between confidence and sort of uh, um, self-awareness. Cause I imagine that Mm -hmm. that's a, that is a tricky needle to thread at times because you're being asked to do this incredibly difficult thing that only a tiny slice of the population is capable of. So I think you have to have like pretty substantial self-belief, you know, and it has to be durable in order for you to weather like the inevitable failure that comes with playing against other really, really good athletes. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that a lot of these guys, like they, they know all you have to do is watch them on the backfields to know, like when they've had a bad at bat, like they, they know that, you know, mm-hmm. when, when another guy takes you deep, like th- there's a change in the body language. So I think that, 
the assessment of readiness would probably maybe, you know, front run that of the org a little bit. But I think that this would probably come down to more practical concerns about getting your your clock started toward free agency and, you know, being able to maximize your earnings and stuff like that. But I don't know, maybe I'm being... Maybe that's optimistic of me. I <laughs> no, I'd, I'd like to think that not too many players would be irrationally confident about how ready they are. And hopefully they and the organization are roughly on the same page and right. are kind of communicating about, right. here's what we're seeing, here's what we think you have to work on. Hopefully that's a mutual thing that they've agreed yes. on and set goals together so that they're right. not on totally different pages. This would do away with any lingering vestiges of service time manipulation, at least, I suppose, right? In those cases where someone is obviously ready, if the player had the decision, then they could call themselves up. And if you're... Brooksley, he played 38 games at AAA last year. He hit 237, 304, 428. Not bad, but not world beating either to the point yeah. where you, know, you could imagine someone, even in these days of paying attention to expected stats and batted ball quality, if you had some fluky BABIP stretch right. at AAA, let's say, you might think, oh, I got this. You know, I can yeah. get called up now. I'm ready. And you right. might not dig too deep into the numbers. So right. I could imagine that happening at times. And I guess you could say, well, what's the downside? Okay, if you get called up a little too early, yeah, you then face some harsh realities, but ultimately you make it back. Maybe the consideration with player development always has been, well, are you going to hurt someone's development long term if you call them up too early? Is that going to get in their heads? Are they going to change something that then hampers them long term? Will it affect their psyche somehow? So that would be the downside. Obviously, there's a downside to the team and that if the player is not good, then that will not help the team. But also, it could hurt the player long term. It might not just be, well, I make some cash to suck for a little while and then someday I'll be back. There actually could be a cost to you long term. But that'd be a really interesting. Yeah, I don't think it would be later. I don't think they would call themselves up later than than the team. If it's going to be one or the other, they're going to call themselves up earlier. But I agree. It's it's almost in all cases, I think, not going to be so dramatically earlier that we would see guys coming up like a year ahead of when they would otherwise be called up, right? Yeah, I have two more thoughts about this. The first mm-hmm. of which is that the guys who are really wrong, who are wildly overconfident, who have just so badly yeah. um, failed at self-assessment, I think would do so in spectacular fashion. Like, <laughs> they would be such outliers and it would be so uncomfortable. Like, it would not be, you yeah. know, it would not be pleasurable to watch them brought low by big league pitching or big league hitting. Like it would just feel, it would feel bad, you know? And I don't know that it would feel any different as a result of the fact that they've sort of um, inflicted this upon themselves. So there's that piece of it. Guy gets drafted and immediately he's like, let's go. (laughs) Let's go tomorrow, you know, tomorrow. Put me in coach. Yeah, I'm ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that piece of it. I also think that, you know, it would be really interesting to see how the 
this would affect, you know, like the Francisco Lindors of the world where like the the sort of beat on him was that like, you know, he ended up struggling at times in the high minors because he was just bored. He was like ready to right. be a big leaguer. And like they, you know, it was like promote me. I'm, you know, like this is, again, I've, I've accomplished everything I can here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that has, you know, he's not the only um, guy for whom that's been true, but it's certainly, you know, he's sort of one of the more notable examples to my mind. And so I would appreciate having more more sort of test cases of that thesis to see what that does for guys and sort of how meaningful in their performance it can be when they f- when they have sort of um, moved beyond the level at which they're currently playing. And, you mm-hmm. know, is that always uh, a good thing or does it, you know, do they get kind of bored with it? And, you know, it's hard to be, you know, full effort when you're in an environment where you kind of feel like things are a little bit on easy mode. So just because yeah. I find that phenomena and interaction between sort of, you know, physical ability, psychology and and level to be so interesting i would appreciate having more sort of data in that in that area so it's almost like the test that researchers will do with little kids sometimes the the cookie test like you can have one cookie now or if you wait and don't eat that cookie then you can have two cookies in a little while Uh it's like a test of self-control or delayed gratification maybe something similar would come into play here if you think that if you wait until you're really ready and then you hit the ground running and you're good from the get-go then that will help you you know maybe it helps you in arbitration later on down the road if your stats are really strong from the start You know, so there are a lot of considerations or like if your family really needs money immediately, then you're like, all right, let's go. (laughs) Hopefully this will go well, but I need to help out my parents. But so there are all kinds of considerations. Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, even with all that's been written about sort of the state of minor league play and even with the improvements that we've seen in that score, like I think we have we all have this mental image of minor leaguers as being like you know, recent draftees or like, you know, for some people, even like recent international signing guys, like it's, it's uh, an image of a very, very young person. Mm -hmm. Um, And like a lot of these guys have families, you know, they have kids, they like have people that are depending on them. So yeah, I do think we'd probably see some of that where people would be like, I got to, I got to go, you know, Mm -hmm. we need to, we need to pay bills more comfortably than we're paying them right now. Yeah. You got to get that good health insurance. I mean, maybe now minor leaguers are unionized. So who knows? Maybe it wouldn't be quite as acute a need to come up immediately. But the other thing is that if you're blocked by someone at the major league level, you're languishing in the minors because there's just no clear path to playing time. And this is sort of the segue into maybe twins trade talk is that even if you can call yourself up, presumably you can't control your playing time once you get there. So you could end up being like a bonus baby or something, you know, back in the old days, you you could come up to the majors, but then you'd just be on the bench and not developing. And that would be frustrating too. And meanwhile, I guess you would cost someone else a job if you get called up, someone else has got to go down. Maybe you'd feel guilty about that. I guess that's always part of the sport. But Brooks Lee, for instance, he could call himself up immediately if we are to take (laughs) that Levine at his word here. But 
can he play? What is right. Carlos Correa going to say about that? Brixley right. is a, a shortstop, right? And they have Royce Lewis maybe playing at the quarter. They have Edward Julian, right? They have all of these good infielders who maybe will not give Brixley any playing time. So, so that's a consideration. I mean, if you are ready and you're blocked by someone, then you might just decide to call yourself up to start making that money anyway. But also, if you can't actually slide into the starting lineup immediately, then you have to consider, right. well, will I be better continuing to see AAA pitching and getting reps and fielding ground balls, et cetera? Yeah, I think that that would really, that would definitely be a consideration because like, you know, I think that most of these guys, not that people, you know, everyone likes a day off and sometimes mm-hmm. uh, it's nice to like go to work and not have to do anything. This is why I always liked working the day after Thanksgiving when I worked in finance because it's like the market closed early and nobody did anything. So I like went to work and didn't have to use a vacation day, but I got to wear jeans. <laughs> yeah. They would send an email, Ben. They would send an email being like, by the way, Friday is a jeans day. And I was like, this place <laughs> is hopeless. Um, but yeah, it was like, oh, I get to wear jeans and like look at Black Friday sale stuff and just be here in case something breaks, which was really what I was there for. But um mm-hmm. You know, I think that most of these guys, like, they're raring to go. They want to play, you know. They're the, there's the part of it that's practical and financial and business and all of that. But, like, I think they also just want to be able to be like, I'm a big leaguer now. Here's what that looks like, you know. Yep. So there's there's that. I think that those, um, those marshmallow and cookie studies kind of got debunked later. Oh, yeah? I think that what they found was that they were really under, they were really measuring the kids' perceived level of like an understanding of scarcity in their own lives. So they were mm-hmm. sadder, Ben. They were much okay. sadder. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> well, there's a little more scarcity in the infield in Minnesota these days because the Mwah. Twins made a trade. Beautiful. <laughs> with Wonderful the Seattle transition. Mariners. Holy cow. And that means that we have a little jingle to play to set up this transactions <laughs> because Jerry DePoto was involved. What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? We're going to talk to Blake Rally about a trade or two. Because what did Jerry DePoto do? Apologies to Derek Falvey that we don't have a what did Derek Falvey do song. He did this just as much as Jerry DePoto did, right? It it takes two to transact, and we always give the credit in the song to Jerry DePoto. But I usually assume he's the instigator, you know? I assume that he's the one picking up the phone, sending the text to get things started. But maybe not. Maybe that's just a a stereotype, and everyone's coming to him because they know that he's willing to deal, right? But One way or another, we have a trade here, a multiplayer trade. The Seattle Mariners have acquired Jorge Polanco, and they have traded quite a few players for the privilege of employing Polanco. So here is the full deal. The Mariners have traded Justin Topa. They have traded Anthony DiScofani, who had a distinguished month or so as a Mariner after coming over in the Robbie Ray trade. And two prospects, Gabriel Gonzalez and Darren Bowen, mm-hmm. as well as the all-important cash considerations. The Mariners are sending money this time, yeah. not getting money sent to them, but they are yeah. sending $8 million to yeah. cover two-thirds of DiScofani's $12 million salary. I know the Giants are still paying part of DiScofani also. So it is a four for one, two big leaguers, two prospects, some cash. The Mariners have gotten their man. They've gotten a second baseman. What do you make of this deal from their perspective? 
It's so funny that you say they've gotten their man because they've been <laughs> trying to get this man and some of it is Jorge Polanco specifically and some of it is just like the archetype that Jorge Polanco occupies for like Jerry DePoto's entire tenure with the city of Seattle. I'm sorry, he doesn't work for the city. He works in the Mariners. <laughs> no, um, true. So I think a couple of things. I want to try to thread a needle here, much like the okay. Mariners are trying to thread a very <laughs> specific needle. Mm-hmm. In isolation, I... Uh, I like this move. Like, I like Jorge Polanco as a player. I think that he is useful. I think particularly if we see his offense either sustain or tick up a little bit, like, great. Is he, like, the best uh, second base defender you've ever seen in your whole life? I mean, like, sure, sure really is not. But, you know, I think that he indicates to me that this Mariners team is trying to get better for 2024. They want to They want to win some games in 2024, and they think that Jorge Polanco is going to assist them in that endeavor. And so when I look at Seattle's like lineup today versus what it was the day the season ended, this is better. This is better Mm -hmm. than it was, Ben. You know, I think that I will use that statement to transition to my second point, which is like, how much better? Mm -hmm. Question mark. The place that I've landed in trying to describe the Mariners' approach to the offseason is, like, they seem to be playing on hard mode. It is clear that either by virtue of the reality of their RSN situation or the perception of their RSN situation from their ownership group that they have been instructed to spend very little money. They have done an awful lot of shuffling around in service of trying to get marginally better while still spending very little money. Mm -hmm. Is Jorge Polanco like meaningfully better just with the bat? We can talk about the positional fit in a second, I guess, but like Mm -hmm. from a, you know, just a hitting perspective, like, is he meaningfully better than like Eugenio Suarez? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. So, so like that's a, a question that one could ask, and I think probably <laughs> should. And when I say that they are playing on hard mode, what I mean is when you're when you're this cash strapped, right? Mm-hmm. When it's this tight, your range of moves is quite narrow. You have mm-hmm. very few of them, and I think that you put yourself in a position to to maybe give up a little much for the privilege of employing like Jorge Polanco. Mm-hmm. I will not pretend that I am like an expert on either Gabriel Gonzalez or Darren Bowen. I know that they are, th- these aren't like 35 plus prospects, you know, depending on the publication you're looking at. Like some pubs have Gonzalez as a top 100 guy. I think that Eric has been a little bit lower um, on him than than maybe some other places. But like, I think, you know, he's uh He's still like a 40 plus and Bowen is promising. So you're you're giving up those two guys in the future. You're giving up Justin Topa, who looked like a high leverage guy last year and pitched very well. And I think you're giving up useful rotation depth in Dace Clefani. So when the teams that you're out there trading with know that this is your primary avenue of talent acquisition you're going to get jobbed a little bit sometimes. And I don't think that this was like a, like a 
crazy overpay. But I think mm-hmm. that if, you know, at the end of this, the offseason, we're going to look at this in aggregate and feel like Seattle ended up paying a premium on their moves in general because of how tight the cash piece was. And I know they sent money in this deal, um, which also kind of makes us think a little bit differently about the Ravi Ray trade, which is like not <laughs> really as maybe neutral as we initially thought. But um, within the confines they have set for themselves, I like this move. Um, mm-hmm. And as I said, I think that this team is better today in the lineup than it was at the start of the offseason. Um, and they desperately needed to improve in that regard. But I also think that, you know, when you look at some of the guys that they have who if it goes right, we're going to say, wow, awesome. You guys are brain geniuses. Also have um, not small downside potential, right? Like mm-hmm. what if Mitch Gerver gets hurt again and can't play or can't hit for as much pop? You know, what happens if Ty France doesn't rebound? What happens if Luke Rayleigh's season really was kind of a mirage? What happens if Mitch Hanniger gets hurt again, right? So I think that, and like, you know, we can ask questions about Polanco's um, offense as well. So I think that there is a road to like an extreme downside scenario for these guys. In all likelihood, if they can get reasonable production out of some of the guys that they have effectively placed bets on and they can keep their rotation relatively healthy, I think that this can be a potent club. Like, that Mariners rotation is stacked and it's still stacked even with Desclafani gone. And, you know, at some point their like reliever magic will wear off um, <laughs> with somebody, you know, I don't think that we can just count on them forever being able to develop these guys. And so I don't want to discount the potential loss of Topa because he is like, we know he is good. Right. And we might need to see if some of the other options that they have available to them end up being good. Um, but, you know, they are in theory trading from a position of strength. I certainly like, you know, some of the guys who they have in the minors on the pitching side, like I'm really excited for Prelander Barroa, for instance. Like there, there are definitely guys here who I think um, are going to become names that we all know at the big league level within the next year. But again, they're playing on hard mode. And I just organizationally, philosophically think that that's a bad decision because baseball is already so hard <laughs> like there's really nothing wrong with just making it a little bit easier on yourself that's not to say that they haven't done anything to improve the club it's not to say that they haven't spent any money like lest we forget they spent money on christmas eve right <laughs> but like their big free agent acquisition of this offseason signed for two years and 24 million dollars so like that's the you know that's like yeah that's nothing um so that's a lot of words to say i like this move on its own i do think it was rich a little bit even within the terms of itself i think this team is better than it was i think that it could end up being bad it could end up just being kind of boring and mediocre uh it could end up being like uh, plucky and good (laughs) and and we'll all look back and be like that meg she was too pessimistic but (laughs) i think it's worth keeping an eye on sort of like the the organizational philosophy that is sort of undergirding all of these moves which is you know, just needing to move the same $10 million (laughs) seemingly over the course of the entire off season. And, uh, you know, that's, that's Jerry's red paper clip, I guess. 
Yeah, their payroll now is 135 million ish. They were at 137 last year, so right. they have basically like they save money here, then they took on money there. They have basically the same amount of money committed, but just to different players who are yeah. maybe better <laughs> than the right. players that they had before, but not as much better as they could have been if they hadn't been so bound to that number and could have just said, let's go get this guy, that guy, and keep the good guys that we already have. So, yeah, I think I'm with you on the overall impact here. It's been another busy winter for Jerry. He never gets to hibernate, but I don't know how much better they've gotten. I guess they've gotten a little bit better. It's maybe a more efficient alignment of those almost identical resources that they're spending. And like, look, I think that, you know, if things go well for some of these guys, like they're more than just a little bit better, right? Like, mm -hmm. again, I don't, I feel bad. I feel like I'm picking on the young man. Imagine a man named Hag Samerty, okay? I just like to pick a guy out of the clear blue sky, a pretend sure. person, a completely made up man, right? Mm -hmm. That made-up man was the starting DH for a team that was just a couple of games out of the postseason. And now their starting DH is Mitch Garver, who is famously a real person who hits mm -hmm. the ball better. I'm so sorry, Sam. You seem like a very nice young man. And you are a useful player to have in the organization on the bench. You were just being asked to do a lot. And that was not your fault. That was the org's fault. Okay. That's not your fault, Sam. <laughs> Ham. Uh, <laughs> right. And yeah. so like, it's Mitch Garver. He's a, you know, we've seen him be a very good big league hitter. We have seen Mitch Hanniger. We've seen both Mitches be quite useful, right? Mm -hmm. Very productive. And, you know, do I think that Luke Rayleigh is a true talent 130 WRC plus guy. No, but I don't think he's a 79 WRC plus guy either, right? Just to pick what he was able to do in like 72 plate appearances in 2022. So like there is a version of this that goes really well for them and they have just a ton more depth. I, I'm not like crazy go nuts for uh, many of their outfield options, but they do you know, admittedly have meaningfully more depth there than they used to. I think they could still use another outfielder, but that's not here nor there. So like, you know, there is a version of this that goes really, really well, you know, and then you look to that rotation and it's like Castillo, Gilbert, Kirby, that's great. And then you get, you know, Bryce Miller and Brian Wu in their sophomore seasons, like really getting to have had that experience, hopefully take a step forward. You got Munoz and Brash, like, I just think that this is a, uh, and you, you know who we didn't talk about? Austin Voth, who, can I just take a tiny cul-de-sac mm -hmm. of silliness? Ben, how many, what percentage of big leaguers would you say you can conjure an instant mental image of their face when I say their name to you? What percentage do you think? I would say, given that there are so many hundreds of yeah. big leaguers, if we're talking like starters who are on yeah. a roster all season, then yeah. it would be a different answer from just the guys who are getting shuffled in the back of bullpens where I'd say maybe like 30% of like all big leaguers who play in a season, which yeah. is way more than a thousand. <laughs> it's like yeah. 1200 something or maybe more than that. Right. So yeah, that I'd probably say like 30% ish for, for that. And if we're talking like starters, like regulars, yeah. maybe 60%. Yeah. Let's like say, 
let's say regulars because um, we want to be like reasonable. Okay, so like I would say that my uh, I have unusually good mental recall of these guys' faces. Okay, and it tends to be the right guy, and I don't. I have been imagining the wrong face for Austin both for years. <laughs> the wrong face, and I've seen him pitch. I've seen him pitch in person, right? Whose like, face is it? Is it someone I else's don't face? Know, ben. <laughs> I don't can, know. Can you One do these, like a police sketch of your version of Austin maybe. Voth? And we will figure it out. Would who it would look like is. that. It would look like that meme police sketch though, where it's just like not a human face. It's like something a child <laughs> yeah. draws. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I will like be doing something else on the couch, editing, look up, see a guy in like quarter profile and be like, oh, that's so-and-so. But I've had the wrong human man's face in my head for Austin both for years, years. <laughs> and I don't know whose face I'm seeing. <laughs> okay. oh, it's probably another national. It doesn't matter. I mean, it does. It drives me crazy. I think about it at least once a week. But any. <laughs> way anyway <laughs> 1457 major leakers in 2023 by the wow, way that's a lot so, yeah arguably and you think too that many i would leakers. get austin both face right because like he's a washington guy he's he was born in redmond mm -hmm. it's very upsetting <laughs> anyway i think that you know i think that this could go really well i think that they could be a team where you know, a couple of months from now, we're talking about how, you know, they executed this offseason plan with a plum and, you know, they made the best of incredibly limited resources and they are good vibes and they're all hitting great and their sequencing is good and the pitching remains superlative. And then everyone's going to be like, you were wrong. And I'll be like, cool. I'm so happy to have been wrong because that mm -hmm. means that my family gets to watch baseball that they enjoy. But I just, you know, I would invite the ownership group to like let their guys play on just like you don't have to play on easy mode just like the f factory settings is that the right way to describe like what the default is when you start a video game what's the mean what's the, the just default. right it says <laughs> that, that just the default right. yeah okay Standard i know about video difficulty. games sure <laughs> what's the latest in the uh, fake pokemon game saga <laughs> a lot of people, people still playing it mm -hmm. are they really well good for mm -hmm. them on the twin side of things, I'm sure it was difficult to part with a player like Polanco, yeah. who's been on that team for 10 years, been in that organization for almost 15 years, yeah. lifetime twin since he was a teen signed out of the DR. Yeah. He's been a good player for them, but they've yeah. had such a glut of infielders. They had a glut of infielders when they traded Luis Arise for Pablo Lopez, which right. worked out fairly well for them, even though Arise got more of the headlines and had himself a fine season, so did Pablo Lopez. And the Twins probably needed a Pablo Lopez more than they needed a Luis Arise. And you could probably say that about what they got back in this deal, too, because, again, just too many infielders. So right. this opens up more regular playing time for Edward Julien. Don't know if they will still insist on platooning him or whether he'll get more of a chance to start all the time. But with Correa, with Julian, with, you know, Brooks Lee uh, able to call himself up at a moment's notice, right? right. <laughs> Correa says he's healthy and more ready than he was after his strange saga last offseason. Royce Lewis, hopefully healthy. So you could see why Polanco at 30 is 
the odd man out, you know, yeah. making a quite reasonable $10.5 million right. this coming year. There's well, a sure, team he's option. a mariner now. Of course he's making a reasonable $10.5 million. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a team option for 2025. But you can see why if they they have also sort of set payroll constraints for themselves and have said that we have to trim if anything. And so they are operating on hard mode as well. And so they are right. dealing a, a good player from a surplus here for what they need, which is pitching. And they have lost some pitchers to free agency and they could right. really use some more. Kenta is not there. Sonny Gray right. is not there, right? So Di Scafani is certainly not as good as those guys. And Topa, you just hope that he will stay healthy, which he has right. had trouble doing in his sure. career. Just Topa's almost 33 years old. He seems like a fairly recent arrival, but that's what happens when you have multiple Tommy John surgeries and flexor yeah. tendon surgery, right? So. Yeah, like <laughs> he was one of those guys where last year I was like, hey, we do actually have to put Justin Topa on the prospect list because he is still mm -hmm. rookie eligible. You know, he's one of those where you're like, how does that guy still have prospect eligibility? He's yeah. Crazy. Now, I, I haven't given the Twins as much grief as I have the Orioles, who have been similarly inactive prior to this trade. The Twins hadn't done much either. And I think that's because we did mention them when we had an earlier conversation about, hey, who's the pressure on? Which teams really need to do something between now and right. opening day? We mentioned them. Yeah. I think it's partly that they have set expectations low, which yeah. doesn't make it better exactly, no. but just means that no one really ever had their hopes up that the Twins right. were going to make major moves this offseason. They sort of came out and said it, or at least it was reported early on that they were looking to lower payroll, if anything. So it's not the Orioles out here being like, we're being as aggressive as any team or, you know, the Red Sox saying that it's going to be a full throttle offseason or anything like that. They had a more measured approach to the messaging. That's part of it. Also, they have big time broadcasting uncertainty going right. on, I believe, as of now. They do not know where their games will be broadcast in 2024. Right. And also they're in the AL Central, which you hate to use that as an excuse for not spending. But the fact is there's just less competition than there is for the Orioles in the AL East. Fewer teams sure. pushing them, right? Totally. So they can maybe kind of coast or at least there's a, a better chance that they can coast back to a division title in that division, even though you do have some teams being more aggressive in that division these days. So for all those reasons, they haven't come up as much, but they certainly did need some pitching. They yeah. needed to do something. They saved money in this move and they have said subsequently that they will be spending that money on player payroll that they are cool. not done. So we will see if they live up to that and what they do. But yeah. I get it. Again, just from a alignment of similar resources right. perspective, if you're not going to spend more, then you might as well spend it on something you really have a need for as opposed to another pretty good infielder when you have a whole lot of those. Yeah, I would like it if the entire Central sort of forced each other to compete on more recognizably big league grounds than um, they tend to. But I think that you're right that they're just in a fundamentally different situation than the Orioles are in the East or even than the Mariners are in the West, right? I think that the AL West is a more competitive division than the Central, even with, you know, the Angels doing whatever they're up to and the A's situation. So it just reads differently when you have the, the one versus the other. 
Polanco is well-regarded. I guess I should say that that is maybe part of why there was a bit of a premium play to, it paid. It does sound like Seattle just like has really wanted Jorge Polanco for a while now. So there's that mm-hmm. piece of it. But this does clear the way for Edouard Julien. And mm-hmm. if we're going to sing the Jerry DePoto song, I would be remiss if I did not point everyone to the uh, piece of original music that our own Davy Andrews wrote. Oh, yeah. Uh, in in Julien's honor um, when he wrote about Julien recently. So uh, yes. please <laughs> it, check it out because it's just like it's so delightful and I, mm-hmm. I just enjoyed it very much. He's a twin, he's a Canadian twin and he rakes until the lefty comes in he won't swing. If it's out of the zone that's one thing I just gotta know Edward Julian, how you gonna rule the camp? Edward Julian, how you gonna Julian is, I think, going to be uh, very good for for them for a while. So I understand there being an obvious sort of sub there. You know, I still think that they need more pitching. Um, But I think that this certainly helps. Uh, Mm -hmm. So there's that, you know, and I think that the prospect piece of it is pretty, pretty interesting, too. So I I think they did pretty well, all things considered. Um, Again, we always want everyone to spend more than they are but um you know given their their options here this was pretty good he was just like he was good for team canada you know in the mm-hmm. wbc edward julian i was like oh yeah. that guy seems like a big leaguer and then you know what yeah, ben? He's really good. he was <laughs> then he mm-hmm. was Congrats to the seven baseball writers who teamed up in various permutations to break the details of this trade. Yeah. (laughs) You know how MLB Trade Rumors, to its credit, at the bottom of a post will credit and link to all of the people who tweeted or wrote about the various details. Here's the paragraph, the full paragraph at the bottom (laughs) of their post about this trade. Mark Feinstein of MLB.com first reported the sides were finalizing a trade, sending Polanco to Seattle. Jeff Passan of ESPN confirmed an agreement was in place. Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic reported the Twins were acquiring four players, two of whom were big leaguers. Robert Murray of Fansided reported Topa's inclusion, while Dan Hayes of The Athletic had Discofani's and Gonzalez's involvement. ESPN's Kylie McDaniel reported the Twins were receiving Bowen and the presence of cash considerations, which Rosenthal specified were coming from Seattle's end. Ryan Divish of The Seattle Times reported the Mariners were paying upwards of $6 million in cash considerations. Hayes and Rosenthal specified the M's were including $8 million in cash considerations. Can you imagine the volume of texts being traded about the details of this trade? We'll never know because no one's ever going to give up their sources, nor should they. But I would love to know the full text traffic as people were trying to break this trade. Because some of these reporters must have been texting the same sources, right? Oh, yeah. You have two front offices involved here, and I'm I'm sure, I mean, you have local writers for the Twins, local writers for the Mariners. They're going to be texting their sources in those organizations, presumably, whereas the national sources, who knows where they're going to get this info. And, you know, agents are involved. I mean, who knows? But some people must have been fielding multiple inquiries from writers, I would think. Oh, yeah. And so I wonder then, did they decide, I'm going to give this tidbit, this morsel to this guy so that he'll owe me something and I'll give this other little tidbit to this other guy. I would love to know, just like if we could map out 
the full yes. contacts list and, and exchange that it takes to break this single trade. That would be fascinating. And also, like, who gets credit for breaking this trade then? Do you give right. it to Feinsand, who said they're finalizing a trade involving Polanco to Seattle? Do you give it to Passan, who confirmed that an agreement was in place? Like, I guess that's yeah. kind of the official break that it, the deal is done. But then if you don't have the full terms of the deal, you know, yeah. it's sort of a semantic debate. Who gets credit for breaking this thing? It's such a team effort. It should be put to a philosophy class, really. You need the <laughs> yeah. experts of an academic mind. Yeah. Hmm. Another question about this trade that came up in our Discord group. What's your position on Photoshopping players into their new team's roster? I hate you do? It. Okay. Okay. Because the Twins took different texts to this where the Mariners tweet, I believe, did have Polanco photoshopped into the Mariners uni. I think then, that might be right. Yeah. And they did a pun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they did a pun. And I think they showed him in his Twins uniform in the background and then oh. more prominently in the Mariners uniform. Whereas okay. the Twins tweet, they didn't bother photoshopping Discofani and Topa into a Twins uniform. <laughs> I don't know if it's just the prominence of the player plays some yeah. part in this. Like, do we really need to see Justin Topa as a twin, what he will look like, or can we just yeah. wait? Because you were just asking, like, how many people can place the face, right? Yeah. More people can place the face of Polanco than Topa or Discofani, probably. Oh, sure. So maybe it's just the more prominent the player, the greater the temptation to Photoshop the uni, but I could go either way on this. I, I understand wanting to give your fans a taste, a sneak peek. What is this going to look like? I also, again, the delayed gratification, you know, wait, wait till spring training, wait till the press conference, wait till yeah. whenever we see him put on that jersey for real. Yeah, I don't, I don't like it, you know, in this age of misinformation <laughs> <laughs> to be doing photoshops. Ben, can mm. I tell you something really exciting? I what? just figured out whose face I've been seeing. Oh, wow. Who? You're never, ever, I could give you one million guesses and yeah. you would not guess. You wouldn't no. guess with one million guesses. Is it Ham Saggerty? I assume that he no. haunts your dreams. Oh, I just feel bad because I feel like I've been a, a, a little jerk to, to Ham and mm -hmm. it's not Ham's fault, you know? Ham didn't build the damn thing. Mm -hmm. Um. <laughs> Ham. Um, it's Austin Bibbins Dirks. <laughs> okay. That's whose face You're right. I, I have been have seeing <laughs> in my mind's eye when I have thought of Austin both all these years. That's mm -hmm. not who he, that's a different human person. Was mm -hmm. a Mariner, you know? Yeah. So maybe yeah. that had something to do with it. Probably not. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I would love to be able to untangle the wires in my brain that led to that misfire. Mm -hmm. But I was just like, and you're you're thinking to yourself, how did you figure it out in the course of this podcast? And I just <laughs> Googled white nationals reliever. <laughs> okay. Because, you know, I was like, I bet he was a national. I don't know why. Anyway, and there he was, Austin Bibbenstrokes. He was coaching in the Fall League. Um, 
Okay. For the Blue Jays, yeah, he's well, uh, he's been coaching for the Blue Jays for it the last appears year. <laughs> that the Mariners' social people they just have a template whenever the Mariners acquire anyone. Yes. They showed the old uniform and the new photoshopped uniform. So they did this for Austin Voth, in fact, when they signed him. And they did it just recently. Another thing Jerry DePoto did even more recently was acquire Samad Taylor from the Royals uh, for right. a player to be named later or cash considerations. And even for Samad Taylor, no pun, no hip hip Jorge equivalent here, but they did show Samad Taylor in his Royals uni and then also in his Mariners uni. So it, it's not just that Polanco was prominent enough to get this treatment. This is just the, the default template for the Mariners got a guy. I don't hate it as long as it's well done and doesn't look weird. But then again, if it looks weird, I think they should go all the way weird and unnatural and yeah, just do yeah. the, the old-fashioned baseball card company airbrushing where you can very clearly tell that this is yeah. not a uniform that the player has ever actually worn. Yes. I think we should keep that tradition alive. The, the pre-Photoshop, very shoddy, very rushed, oh, our card set is about to go to print. Let's just yeah. <laughs> slap this logo on there and call it a day. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Something about it feels, you know, I know this isn't the spirit in which it's intended, so I don't want to attribute, like, um, anything uh, uh, nasty here, but it feels disrespectful to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> the time that the guy has spent with his most recent team, you know, mm. you're going to get plenty of pictures of him in your uni very mm -hmm. soon. Yeah. Very soon. And I think that part of why you should not do the Photoshop thing is that, um, you know, there are guys who end up returning to an organization after a couple of different moves. And it's mm -hmm. always funny when, like, when Mitch Hanniger got, when they traded for <laughs> Hanniger, yeah. they didn't have to Photoshop him. They just have a million pictures of him in a Mariners uniform. And it's like, that would be funny if all <laughs> of these teams didn't Photoshop their guys because you would know, oh, right, mm -hmm. he was a Mariner. And then it would yeah. be funny. Funny, but instead, it just you you didn't have to know that to understand that. Yeah, so I mm -hmm. just don't I don't care for it at all, Ben. I really don't. Yeah. Other positive Twins news: Byron Buxton said at Twins Fest that he will be back in center field in 2024. Oh, thank now, God. Yes, <laughs> right now. How long will he be back there? Who knows? But at least he intends to play there. He's right. feeling well enough to play there. Good. That is a great relief because obviously last year he seemed sort of wasted as a DH. Now he wasn't great as a DH and whether that was because he wasn't out in the field, which can affect some guys offensively or just the fact that he wasn't fully healthy and he had right. knee issues all year that prevented him from playing center field. And then ultimately he had knee surgery in October, right? So if Byron Buxton is not raking or playing center, then he's not a very valuable player. But even if he were raking and not playing center, it would be a letdown. It would be disappointing unless right. you thought that was really going to keep him healthy. Then it might be a sacrifice worth making, but right. they kind of had the worst of both worlds in 2024. And I would love to see him out there making incredible plays and being valuable, however well he hits, because such a great glove if he is still, yeah. you know, hasn't lost a step or anything and, and everything is uh, fine knee wise. I just like the period at the beginning of the season where we are able to like, 
you know, imagine what it would look like over the course of an entire season. And I don't say that, like, he can't stay healthy or, like, I mean, because he can't stay healthy, but, like, he won't stay healthy or, like, it will go badly. But, you know, it's it's just a lot more fun to contemplate the, the good days with him than the bad because the good days are so good. This is part of why it's been so disappointing that he hasn't been able to stay healthy because, mm-hmm. uh, like, when he is healthy and is playing center field and is hitting like he's one of the most valuable players in the sport because he's that Mm -hmm. good yeah um so this this part of the calendar where that feels like it's still a possibility is really exciting i'm only just now realizing like how terrible a turn uh white nationals reliever (laughs) could have taken (laughs) yeah you gotta be pretty careful kind of like uh, yeah brush up against a ghost there bad bad. yeah and by the way that didn't reveal his face but then i was like thinking in my head like who did pitch for them (sighs) anyway meg's brain stark in there don't know man (laughs) now that you're such a gamer and you're so well aware of uh, power world meg knows one game (laughs) and so is a gamer thank you i feel so welcome i've been tempted multiple times when we've been talking about a player with a knee injury, whether it was James Paxton or Byron Buxton, to say they used to be an adventurer like you, and then I uh-huh. took an arrow in the knee. W- oh. would, would that ring a bell for you if I if I said uh-uh, that? I don't I know used, what that you know, is. What's okay. that from? There was a there was a Elder Scrolls uh, Skyrim NPC, you know, non-player character. You run I know into. what an NPC is. <laughs> okay, I don't know how much I have to explain here. I who, know uh, <laughs> what an NPC is. I learned that <laughs> acronym in like the last year. Yeah, but I know it. Somewhat famously or infamously, the the guards in that game, sometimes you'll run into them and one of their stock lines, their their shouts, as it's called, the NPCs, if they have kind of a pre-programmed bit of dialogue, is, I used to be an adventurer like you, then I took an arrow in the knee, dot, dot, dot. And so arrow in the knee or arrow to the knee became a meme because that was just sort of a strange (laughs) fate for someone to suffer. I would not be surprised if Byron Buxton took an arrow in the knee somehow, but hopefully that won't happen in 2024 or ever for that matter. It sounds like they're they're getting ready to do more The Last of Us, Ben. Yep. Mm-hmm. They're going to make more The Last of Us. I don't know yeah. what happens. I don't want to know. Don't tell me, please. No email I, about I will it. not. Okay, I thank wouldn't, you. wouldn't dare. People are really concerned. There's some, I don't think there's controversy about the the actor, but the, the mm-hmm. there's been casting and people seem very nervous for the actor who was cast for a role that I don't know. Yes. Caitlin so Deaver. Yes. I feel, as, as Abby. Yeah. Yeah. I feel <laughs> nervous, but I can't go find anything out about why, because then I'll know stuff that I don't want to know. Right. It's like you very know too much. Yeah. Yeah. I don't well, want to know too much. If you want you my know. thoughts on that, I did a you, podcast about that recently. It's called really? Button Mesh and it's on the Ringerverse feed. Butt okay. Mesh? <laughs> Button mash. Button Another thing mash. that it is important to pronounce fully it, and precisely. It's not shortened to butt mash. <laughs> we have not shortened it to that, no. But the butt mash. Like I to. think that's what the Eagles do to to try to convert fourth down. <laughs> yeah. Is the butt mash. That's what Mario they do does. The tush, they do the he does tush, a butt stomp. They yeah, do the, the tush, tush push, push mm-hmm. or the br- brotherly shove. And I love how they were like. <laughs> The brotherly shove is better, and I was like, I think both of those sound like they could be dirty if you were really interested oh, yeah. in making them. So, but butt mash <laughs> would have been really, um, really maybe pushing the line too far, I guess. Maybe butt mash. It's a family friendly mm. show, mostly. Okay, mostly. So, while we're talking about designated hitters, one was signed. <laughs> I thought you were gonna be like, while we're talking about butts. <laughs> <laughs> well, he has one. Justin Turner is. A t- <laughs> 
Toronto Blue Jay. Yeah. He has signed a one-year deal to probably mostly DH for the yeah. Blue Jays, although yes. perhaps could spell some corner infielders as maybe. well. Yeah, Shouldn't, maybe. Shouldn't, though. I that would be an adventure. He used to be an adventurer like us, and then he became he a got, DH. And, yeah, oh, but yeah. <laughs> he is still a pretty good hitter, you know? Yeah. Still kind of consistently turnery, yes. works yes. the count, is yes. uh, seen as a good clubhouse guy, good leader, yeah. etc. Yeah. And I don't know if this blocks a Matt Chapman reunion or not, because it's again... $13 million. Like. Yeah, and it's not like he is really a third baseman no, not at anymore. this point. So I guess that's still theoretically a possibility. If this is an either-or situation, then perhaps you could be a bit disappointed. But Justin Turner, still a good guy to have around, you know? Yeah. And I guess one concern is if he is the Brandon Belt replacement... Right. Then he's a right-handed hitter, unlike Bell. It's been a pretty righty-heavy lineup. But yeah. I tend not to stress too much about platoon leans. If yeah. you're a good hitting team, I think that's more important. Ideally, I guess you'd be more balanced. But I would prefer just a bunch of good hitters who hit from the same side to a bunch yeah. of not as good hitters who are more evenly distributed handedness-wise. Anyway, yeah. Justin Turner, Toronto Blue Jay. Yeah, I like it. I think it's nice. I hope that it does not preclude a Matt Chapman reunion because, and I do not mean any particular disrespect to Kevin Biggio. I'm not even going to make up a fake person's name to refer to him. <laughs> but I think that, um, you know, as we talked about when Isaiah Kiner Falefa came into the fold, like it's fine, but I think you want like a real third baseman, um, you know, someone who can really. Pick it over there. Um, mm -hmm. And that would be Matt Chapman. So I think that they should do that. But mm -hmm. I like this for them quite a bit because, you know, like when you're talking about lineups, it's like there's Biggio and there's Davis Schneider and there's Varsho and there's Kiermeyer. where for for differing reasons, depending on the guy, you're like, what are you going to get out of, what are you going to get out of them? You know, what are you mm -hmm. going to get? Like, it could be really good or it could be, uh, pretty mediocre. Um, and so uh, I don't want to like make anyone feel sad preemptively about Davis Schneider, but like, look, <laughs> look at how the end of that season went for him because it wasn't mm -hmm. how the beginning of his season went. Mm -hmm. So I think that Turner, you know, having him behind Guerrero is like a, a really nice addition. And if they can bring Chapman back, all the better we would have a have to have a very different conversation about them than we had with the Mariners or the Twins or the Orioles where it's like you know right now we have their their luxury tax payroll at like 250 million dollars so they're like into penalty territory right mm -hmm. um but i don't know that they are quite uh done at least not in the way that i would want them to be um so mm -hmm. yeah the yep. Blue Jays and Justin Turner. And, uh, you know, my favorite thing about this signing, it's going to be my favorite thing all the times, except when they wear the red tops, which I don't care for anyway. They're not my favorite uni of the Blue Jays unis. Mm -hmm. I understand the significance of the red because they're Canadian. So I'm like, I don't need that explained to me, but they're literally the Blue Jays. Yeah, not the Red Jays. But I think that when they are not wearing those tops, which are already bad, you know, what a nice little contrast for Turner with the beard, right? It's it's mm. basically like being a Dodger, except you're a Blue Jay. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, 
Turner is still capable of spelling Vlad at first base every now and then if yeah. necessary. And Vlad, by the way, new cover model for, I mean, while we're talking about video games, this is basically yes. a video game podcast, but he's the, the new cover model for MLB The Show 24. And, you know, a lot riding on this Vlad season. Yeah. Obviously, MLB The Show banking on Vlad to bounce back. The Blue Jays banking on Vlad to bounce back. Vlad banking on Vlad yeah. to bounce back. He's had a couple decline years in a row after the big breakout. Yeah. And I know he's made some mechanical tweaks. There was some footage of him showing off a slightly altered, simplified swing. I know Bauman blogged about him for Fangraphs recently. There's been a lot of consternation. What's wrong with with Vlad, What's what is holding him back? Yeah, is it some sort of batted ball spin mystery? Is he just hitting the ball on the ground too much? And now it be the show. Is it close? Banking on him for a big year. We talked last year at this time about the choice of Jazz Chisholm as the MLB The Show cover model and how he was sort of anomalous in what he had accomplished in his career to that point. He was not as much of a star and as established a productive player as the typical cover model for this game. And he didn't, I guess, justify that choice from a performance standpoint in 2023. Vlad, much bigger name and bigger star and better known, but is coming off a less valuable season than Jazz Chisholm was when he was chosen. So, you know, maybe it doesn't really matter if he has a big year or not as far as how many copies this game sells when you choose someone to be on the cover of your game. He has a lot of name recognition. If people were trying to place the face and you said, can you picture Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? Yes, almost everyone could picture him and would not confuse him with Austin Voth or Austin Bibbins Derbix or any other Austin. So that's probably the primary consideration. But I do hope that Vlad has a good year. You know, I hope that he mashes like Vlad again because it just feels like he should and he kind of has to to be a great player at least. Yes. Yeah, he had to be a great player, to be, you know, the kind of player who ends up on um, the cover of a video game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important that he um, yes. mash. So I yep. hope he goes back to mashing. Mm-hmm. Couple mm. smaller transactions that caught my eye, really for contract related reasons. So one was Hector Neris going mm. to the Cubs. Yep. Now I I mentioned this really only because. I had seen a report about what Hector Neris was seeking in free agency, and then what he actually got was vastly less than that. Now, what he got from the Cubs was a one-year $9 million deal, although there is, I think, a vesting option that seems like it very likely could vest. I think he has to clear 60 games, which uh, he has done a bunch recently. So maybe it'll end up being two guaranteed years, who knows, in the end. But he was said to be seeking. This was a, a report earlier this month by Hector Gomez, who is not always accurate, but can be pretty plugged in, particularly with Dominican players at times. And Mm -hmm. he cited a source on January 17th saying, relief pitcher Hector Neris is seeking a three-year, $50 million deal. Wow. The hashtag Yankees showing a lot of interest in him, the source said. Now, $50 million, that would be a lot for a Hector Neris. And so this did raise my eyebrow even when I saw it. If this 
is accurate, or really even if it's not accurate, because I mentioned this recently, Sam Miller did an article years ago for ESPN where he looked at all the times that a player was said to be seeking something and then looked at what they actually got. And I forget whether he limited the sample to like when the player actually said that or when a source just claimed or it was rumored to be seeking, but he found that the players got 87.5% of what they were seeking in terms of total dollars and guaranteed years. So this is a much lower percentage than that. Again, like I'm sure all the reports that Sam used, they weren't confirmed. They were just, you know, said to be seeking. And this was a report about what someone was said to be seeking. And ultimately, I guess he got 18% of what this report said he was seeking. So in that sense, it's surprising. On the other hand, it would have been very surprising if Hector Neris had gotten a $50 million deal because, you know, he's been a good, consistent reliever and he's coming off a year when he had a 1.71 ERA, but the peripherals are probably going in the wrong direction. The stuff may be going in the wrong direction. He's 35 years old, so or almost. So, you know, it's it's a reasonable contract. I just, that lodged in my mind when I yeah. saw 50 million and then I saw 9 million. And I said, yeah. that number is a lot lower than that other number. It does seem like um, those are different scales of numbers. You know, <laughs> those are, are yeah. like... Like, just thinking to our recent Patreon episode, like, the houses, those are Mm. different houses, Ben, you know, Mm -hmm. the one versus the, and to be clear, they're both very nice houses, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they're different, they're different houses. Um, One of them might not have a conversation pit, you know, like, (laughs) yikes, then what kind of house even is it, the kind I have right now, but, you know, like, it's a nice house, but like, uh, it doesn't have a conversation pit, Ben. (laughs) No, (laughs) we were talking about... uh... mansions and what we would like in our mansions if we could design our own. Yeah. Yeah. Like if we were to win Powerball or something, you know. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if that were the case that he were seeking 50 million on January 17th and then he signed for 9 million like 10 days later or something, that'd be quite a come down. That'd be quite a mental adjustment to go from seeking 50 to getting 9. But perhaps he was not actually seeking 50. The other reliever contract situation that caught my eye is Adam Adovino's. Yeah, I thought you were going to start here. Yeah, Adam Adovino signed with the Mets, re-signed with the Mets, one-year $4.5 million deal. And this is odd because he declined a $6.75 million player option with the New York Mets. So he declined a bigger option and then signed a smaller deal with the Mets. Granted, some of that 6.75 was deferred, right? Mm-hmm. And according to John Becker's calculations, the difference is only about 900000 less in present-day dollars because $4 million of that 6.75 was going to be deferred. So it's still unusual, I would say, to decline an option and then get less and not only get less, but get less with the same team that you had the option with. If you didn't want to be with that team, that's one thing. But if he was content to stay with that team, also extra strange because he had talked about why he declined the option 
And he said that the Mets situation was sort of unsettled, right? And he didn't know if they were planning to contend. And I guess at the time, their manager situation was also uncertain. And that's no longer the case. They do have a manager, at least. But I wouldn't say their competitive stance is that much clearer than it was yeah. when he opted out. It's yeah. not like they've gone back all in or anything. So it would seem from a competitive standpoint that not all that much has changed. And so to opt out and I don't know if you could say bad mouth the organization, Jarrett Seidler did put it that way, trashed the org. And I, I guess you could kind of call it that at least, you know, it wasn't the rosiest interpretation of, of the Mets these days. And then yeah. for those two parties to find their way back to each other, that was somewhat surprising and strange. Yeah, it's weird. It's a weird thing. And you wonder, like, did something in his perception of the org change? Did he mm -hmm. just, did he and his people misjudge the market? Like, I don't know. It's a yeah. weird, it's a, it's a funny one. It's a funny yeah. one. Because this is. doesn't happen very often. Like, no. if for no other reason than I think that guys to our earlier discussion tend to have a good sense of these things about themselves, like where their market mm -hmm. kind of stands. So yeah, odd. I don't know. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. He said he liked being part of the organization. He's yeah. 38 years old. He's from right. New York. He, he's right. pitched pretty well for them. I, again, like if he had picked up the player option, I would not have been surprised by that. <laughs> but right. the way he went about staying is what's yes, weird. is what's weird. And it's not like, like a couple years ago, am I right to remember that the Dodgers intentionally didn't tag Clayton Kershaw with the uh, qualifying offer sort of as a courtesy to him to like not hinder his market? Um, and then they just ended up re-signing him. Am I remembering the mechanics of that correctly? Yeah, that might Maybe. be right. Yeah. Or there was still some uncertainty about like whether he wanted to pitch or how he yeah, felt, right? But Something yeah. like that. And they like, you know, they kind of did, you know, a, a guy a solid and obviously Otto's relationship with the with the Mets is different than like Kershaw's with the Dodgers but like that that's sort of the form that you kind of expect this stuff to take where it's like we want to let a guy who's meant something to us sort of explore his options with the there's a, a way back for him but for a player to be like no don't give me that money give me less different mm -hmm. money yeah. it's weird yeah mm -hmm. weird yeah something must have changed <laughs> in the interim yeah. also the Tigers signed Colt Keith to yeah, an extension. Colt they did. Keith. Sounds like he should be on a Taylor Sheridan show, but no, he is on the Detroit Tigers, and he has not yet made the majors, No, although he probably will now. Yeah. <laughs> I would think even more than Brooks Lee, he could probably uh, call his shot when it comes to making yes. the majors now. But six-year extension that guarantees him $28.6 million, but can max out at $82 million over nine years because there are three club options. That's a, a lot of club options, even for a deal of this sort. And then yes. there are various incentives involved as well. So yep. Colt Keith, Tigers, top prospect, a 22-year-old infielder, probably second baseman, who well, is what a, more, of a, more of a bat what a, first <laughs> prospect. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think the way that that he has been thought of at Fangraphs is like probably second because he can be hidden there more effectively. Um, mm -hmm. I'd like to point out that Colt Keith almost killed me one time, you know? Really? So that, yeah, 
yeah with a with a batted ball <laughs> yeah at the futures uh-huh. game last summer yeah. like the ox box was out in the outfield and uh-huh. um i almost died uh and so okay. did my computer a couple of times in fact um well, despite that i testified well. to his his batted yeah. ball quality then yeah i was like <laughs> i think i made the following noise in front of just a lot of people ah! <laughs> because i almost died ben like i just mm-hmm. almost you know like in death becomes her where she has a hole in the middle of her it was gonna be like that and also mm-hmm. through my computer um so yeah there's there's definitely pop there you know i think that they have an interesting sort of infield puzzle to sort out over the next little bit um with keith and with jace young uh josh's younger brother and like where he ends up playing ultimately you know they're gonna have to sort that stuff out but yeah like he's a he's a 50 for us so he'll be a top 100 guy he's not the the top prospect in their system but he's a top 100 prospect i saw that he had some just very clear-headed comments about the whole thing where it's like uh he knows that if it doesn't like work out from a playing perspective well the worst that happens is that he and his family are kind of set up so mm-hmm. cole keith yep, yep. yeah he so. does sound like he should be in yellowstone or mm-hmm. not the young sheldon no. wrong name for that <laughs> franchise because apparently <laughs> that's what we're doing but yeah cole keith yeah and of course, uh, people always invoke the Scott Kingery and Jonathan Singleton extensions sure. as uh, the ones that you want to avoid that kind of outcome. But the calculus with these, it's always similar if he's good and he's not projected, at least by Zips and Dan Saborski's breakdown, to be a superstar or anything, more like an average player, which is what a 50 is, right? But even if he is an average big leaguer for years to come, then the Tigers are getting quite a good deal. So that's what you hope for. There's always some slight extra uncertainty when the player has not even made his major league debut yet. But I'm, if anything, surprised that this sort of extension doesn't happen even more often because from a team perspective, it can be a big win. I'm going to take this all a step farther. I actually don't think that there's a version of deals like this that is bad. I mean, Mm -hmm. like there's a version of deals like this that are bad for the player because there's a a scenario where he ends up being like an all-star and amazing. And he's even, um, you know, when you start to factor in the years that would be under team control, like probably not making enough, but he's making, he's Mitch Garver, but over longer, you know, in Mm -hmm. terms of the money. So Mm -hmm. it's just, I I assert that it is impossible for those kinds of deals to actually be bad. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think someone may have mentioned this in our Discord group, but speaking of photos tweeted by team Twitter accounts, the photo that the Tigers used for Colt Keith and the announcement of his extension, a lot of ugla in him, in this Mm. pick at least, and maybe the player profile too. Oh, I'm so excited. Just in terms of neck thickness and oh, form yeah, I get, size. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I get what you that's, mean. That's the second coming. That's another incarnation yeah. of Dan Ugla. And also in the sense that he's just someone you sort of stick at second base and hope for the best because he hits, right? Now, in terms of listed dimensions, Colt Keith has the same listed weight as Dan Ugla, but is three inches taller. <laughs> so if if that's accurate, then he's not the quite he's not the full Ugla yet, because Ugla was packing that mass in a smaller frame. Although I guess Colt Keith has time to grow into a more <laughs> Ugla Ugla esque dimension, but but he's working on it. That's that's kind of my mental image of him now. 
I'm just so happy that I figured out who I thought Austin both was. Like, Me my too. God, Ben, the mental mm-hmm. relief, the clarity. Yeah. I can just yeah. worry about something else at three in the morning now. Oh, I'm mm-hmm. freed up. Yep. Okay. Couple quick things to end. Harry, Patreon supporter, wrote in in response to our death ball discussions mm. and said, I don't actually want this to happen, but I do think it would be very funny if the death ball became a defining pitch of the 2020s so that we could have both a dead ball era and a death oh, ball era. Yes, in. Let's do it. <laughs> so confusing. Let's go. Yeah. Again, I, I don't love the name. I don't think it's descriptive enough, but yeah. I am maybe more in now because if we could call it the death ball era, that would be yeah. fun. Oh, it'd be so confusing, though. It would be so confusing to people. Yeah. Ah. Not dead ball. Death ball. I said death ball. Death ball. ball. (laughs) Death ball. (laughs) Yeah. And then we also got some messages from people who were responding to our email show answer last time about a Freaky Friday body swap with Dick Mm. Monfort, right? And what we failed to consider in our answer to that question was the other end of the body swap. The question was, what if you two, I guess both of us somehow body swapped into Dick Monfort and were in control of the Rockies for several years? What we neglected to mention, as listener Pete and others wrote in to say, is that what's happening when Dick Monfort is in our bodies? Now that is maybe more disturbing to contemplate, which yes, perhaps is. is why we didn't. <laughs> we f- we focused on how are we going to fix the Rockies? Yeah. Not what is Dick Monfort going to be doing in yeah. our bodies while we're doing that? And yeah. that is kind of disturbing. That is uh, upsetting to contemplate. I don't know how that would affect effectively wild. I yeah. would imagine that it would be clear quite quickly that we were no longer hosting Effectively Wild, that we had been possessed by someone, if not necessarily the Rockies owner. I'm sure there would be a very different vibe to the podcast, possibly to my writing at The Ringer, to oh, Fangraph's yeah. general editorial strategy. Yeah. I would be very concerned that once we return to our bodies from fixing the Rockies, that there would no longer be an Effectively Wild or Fangraphs or Ringer to return to. (laughs) Yeah. That maybe he would have rockified all of those things while we were fixing the Rockies and we would find our previous places of employment in some sort of smoking ruin. Or at the very least, we would be unemployed, you know, like the, the, the publications might save themselves, but I think that we would be on the outside looking in maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. I don't care for that at all, Ben. <laughs> no, yeah. me neither. Yeah, I think there's a reason why we just sort of memory hold that part of the conversation. Yeah. I wasn't actively avoiding it, to be clear. We just were focusing on the Rockies aspects, and maybe we had an intentional sort of uh, <laughs> a willing suspension of uh, disbelief or, or belief when it came to that part of the question, because uh, yeah. we did not want to contemplate that. Candidly, I didn't really think about it as like a literal Freaky Friday-ing. I kind of maybe thought we've like locked him in a broom closet or that Uh it was more metaphorical. So we're like... We're like inside outing Dick Monfort. Mm. I don't mean that we're like doing anything horrible to him. Wearing his skin. Yeah. Yeah. No skin wearing, but like the movie Inside Out where it's like right. there's the multiple emotions. You know, you got a couple different guys. Mm-hmm. Wow. I I think I'd rather stay in my body. Is that okay? Can we just yeah. like, I'm yeah. sorry, Rockies, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah. uh, I don't know that I think it's worth it. We can agree on that. Okay. And lastly, I have been struck 
by some conversations in other sports in recent days okay. that have mirrored <laughs> baseball Are we conversations. About analytics? That we, yeah, I mean, not solely, but <laughs> right. In the NFL these days, you, you have the whole discourse after the Lions loss <sighs> and going for it on fourth down, right? And then in the NBA these days, you have a discourse about scoring and mm. some of the high scoring games. This is one of the highest scoring seasons in several decades, and mm. you're having individual games where players are scoring 60 plus 70 plus points right and there's been a whole lot of hand-wringing about is this too much have things gone too far too many three-pointers too fast a pace too many possessions etc etc we've had all these conversations before in baseball and maybe in those sports too to some degree Mm -hmm. and we've talked before about how at least when it comes to sabermetrics analytics, that baseball was at the forefront. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the conversations that are happening in the NFL these days, it's like, oh yeah, we talked about this 20 years ago. So let's let's let you know how this goes. And you can predict, like I saw baseball people, baseball media members predicting what the backlash would be. You know, I saw like Joe Sheehan and Nate Silver, you know, people who were around for that part of sure. sabermetrics breaking into baseball were anticipating the reactions that there were going to be to that Lions loss. And that did come to pass. And there was mm-hmm. a pro football talk piece that just totally, you know, channeled that early 2000s baseball, crusty, cranky baseball person spirit. I think we need some sort of independent body not a sports czar like my boss Bill Simmons has suggested exactly, but like a sports history czar, maybe. Mm. Not necessarily someone who has the power to legislate all sports, but just provides guidance, you know, like sort of a, I don't know, congressional budget office sort of role, like kind of like a ostensibly nonpartisan authority that comes in and and says, well, here's what the effects of that will be, or, you know, here's what has happened in the past, and here's what all the ramifications of that would be. Someone who just knew everything about all the sports. And so when people started freaking out about something in one sport, they could just draw the analogy and say, oh, yeah, well, let me remind you that this exact scenario played out in this other sport previously. Mm -hmm. And here's what happened. And uh, that means that this is probably what's going to happen in your sport. So you can be prepared for that. And if you want, you could skip the whole reactionary backlash stage and Mm -hmm. just uh, learn a lesson or, you know, learn lessons about what actually did go wrong and what you should be sounding the alarm about, right? I'm just saying all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again, right? Yeah. Star Galactica. I mean, it's just... We talk about this with baseball, too. That's why I think it's valuable to know baseball history, because so many of the things that we discuss have happened before and can be instructive to know how people reacted or address those concerns previously. But we we need that for all sports, because no one's yeah. an expert in all of them. No. And we need some sort of cross-pollination. We need more communication, people talking to each other so that yep. they know what's going to come and we can avoid making the same mistakes over and over again. I like that idea. Or you could spend, you know, an afternoon of your one human life fighting with somebody about it on Twitter like I did yesterday. <laughs> um, just like pick a relevant example. Um, 
I think, well, first of all, and I appreciate that the humor of this might not um, land quite as hard with you uh, as it will with some of our listeners who are into the NFL, but it just remains so funny that the decisions of literally Dan Campbell are like being held up as like (laughs) analytics gone too far. And I don't mean that as a knock on Dan Campbell. I think that he's done a really great job of adjusting to new information and using it to try to make his team better. It has to be so maddening to be a coach or a manager because you can make good decisions. You can make the correct decision to go forward on fourth down. You can dial up the right fourth down play call. We can talk about the goal line stuff later because like that was wrong. But, um, you know, and the guy just doesn't catch it. Ben, sometimes mm-hmm. you just, you know, it still comes down to the players to execute and they don't always do it perfectly. So that has to be so frustrating. I share your, um, I will express it as annoyance. I don't need to label the feeling for you that like there <laughs> isn't more sort of historical literacy around this stuff as it goes from sport to sport, if for no other reason than I think that where we ended up landing as a as an industry was that like it would have been nice if we had done a better job anticipating some of the labor implications of um, prioritizing optimization and efficiency. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't seem to be Well, I don't know. Maybe in the running back discourse, we're seeing signs that that actually is happening a lot in football. But like, I think that it would be good to get to that place where you're trying to strike the right balance between eliminating suboptimal strategies, but also remembering that human beings are the ones who are doing this stuff. And I think particularly in football, where like the the physical cost of playing the sport is so high, um, it's really incumbent on folks to be mindful of like, Am I shortening a career? Am I, you know, taking money from this segment of the player population to pl- to pay a different one? But this part of the player population, namely running backs and guys on the line, are like taking so much physical damage when they're playing. But it's a capped sport, so it's complicated. Gosh, I'm so happy we don't have to understand how a cap works. Like I hear the <laughs> freaking cap rolls in the NFL, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, yeah. that would be so much work. But um. All that to say, like, it is funny that there is not more sort of historical understanding there. And I think that we see it manifesting in a lot of different ways. Like, we see a lot of the same nerd, like, you're trying to ruin the sport, you don't know, ball kind Mm -hmm. of stuff um, that we saw with baseball. And I think that we're seeing, you know, some of the smarminess that we saw from the stat crowd in baseball replicated in football too. Mm -hmm. And since, uh, I only have like the ear of one of those groups, I'm just going to ask everyone, stop being so smarmy, you know, like (laughs) you're not going to persuade anyone. You're not winning hearts and minds. If you're calling somebody stupid, Yeah, I just got, I got, you know, it's like, George Kittle thinks that like momentum is real in a like predictive way, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, uh, or at least that's kind of how it read to people. And that I think is silly because if that were true, like the Lions would have won that game and not the Niners. But, you know, we end up in this spot where we're looking at literally George Kittle, who is like an incredibly talented football player and sort of implying he doesn't know ball. And, like, that seems dumb because it's George Kittle. So, like, I think that we, you know, if I could, like, advise uh, our football compatriots, I might say, like, 
going into those conversations with like a spirit of generosity and openness is I think more useful and productive as a means of like advancing a conversation that actually leads to real understanding and um, enthusiastic adoption rather than grudging adoption than being mm-hmm. like, you know, a know-it-all. Yeah, I think there's an even stronger temptation to be dismissive just because this has happened before and we kind of know how it played out. And so especially if you went through the scouts versus stats war the first time around, the old school versus new school, then it's it's like, are we doing this again? You know, it's kind of tedious. It's like we know where this is going. And so you're even more tempted to just sort of dunk on someone, which, again, maybe makes them dig their heels in even more right. and makes it worse. But I I guess I understand where that comes from if you're sort totally. of aware of, of this as just yeah, a repetitive cyclical phenomenon, right? And so that's why I feel like we need the sports history czar yes. or maybe it's a sports ombuds person, I don't know, yes. or just like a, a sports media ombuds person who is just aware of all the sports coverage from all time. <laughs> to be clear, this would be useful in all walks of life, not just in sports. It would be great right. if we all just knew history really well <laughs> and we're not doomed to repeat it, right? So that would be just great. But, you know, I'm just dealing with our limited purview of sports here seems slightly more manageable because it's always just the same things. You know, something gets out of whack, like some pendulum swings a little too far. You get out of some offense-defense equilibrium. Scoring's up, scoring's down. It's outside the sweet spot. You have to change some rule to bring it back into line. You know, players exploit some loophole and they're able to be good or teams do or there's some analytical innovation and suddenly it's taken too far and in football that could mean more passing and in basketball that could mean more three-point shooting and more possessions and you know we've seen this just so many times repeat itself in different incarnations that it would be nice if there could just be some sort of standardized centralized authority that was just like oh we've seen this before you know we we know what happens it's like uh, the time variance authority from Loki or something. It's like we gotta we gotta cut off this this branching timeline here. Like let's uh, go back to what was working because we know that if we allow this to keep playing out, then things are just gonna get worse. And here's uh, seven different examples of how that right. happened before. Not that all the sports are the same, no. and not that some analytical conclusion is equally well founded in every sport. I know that there are ways in which football is harder to analyze. Sure metrically speaking, and there can be more wiggle room and more uncertainty. And Mm -hmm. that's the case for almost every sport compared to baseball. But still, some of these principles apply to all of them very broadly. It'd be cool if we could just sort of skip the intermediate stages. Although, then again, why do we pay attention to sports if it's not to argue about them? So maybe, maybe it's not a bug. Maybe it's a feature. Who knows? Yeah. And like, I, you know, I want to be clear. It's not like I do this stuff perfectly and always like resist the temptation to clap back. Like you can only have your playoff odds misunderstood so many times before you just (laughs) feel like yelling at a rando on Twitter. So I get, Mm -hmm. I get that piece of it. And I think that, you know, like I understand baseball through a statistical lens, you know, so it's not like they, they have an, they have an ally in me in this effort. Like I've watched Pete Carroll insist on running the ball when you just throw it, you know, if you just <laughs> threw it sometimes, 
Oh, that's really weird. Pete's gone now, so I feel bad talking about like my frustration <laughs> with the offense at times. But, you know, I think that there are real breakthroughs in understanding that will lead to a more enjoyable version of the sport to watch. And I think that challenging orthodoxy is like a creative and generative process, or it can be. And and I get being frustrated by people who just like r- refuse to even engage with some of the ideas and concepts, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that, you know, one thing that we have seen in this space on the baseball side is that the the binary between like stats and scouting or, you know, jer- jacks and nerds, like it's a completely false binary, right? And most of the really good organizations that we see in the sport, like try to view a bunch of different data sources as potentially enriching to their ability to win the game. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that especially in the last couple of years when you're looking at something like how our understanding of pitching, for instance, has progressed even in, you know, just the last little bit. It's like, I don't know, like think about seam shifted wake, right? Mm-hmm. Who were the first people who really noticed that? It was pitching coaches. Now, they might not have had like the physics vocabulary to describe it, and they might not have always been properly identifying it. And we certainly have a way more precise understanding of what it is and how we can, you know, help guys to alter their repertoire, their mechanics, their grip, whatever, to accentuate the seam shifted wake elements of a pitch. But like, there were pitching coaches for a long time who were saying like that pitch is otherwise very ordinary but it can freaking play so mm-hmm. what's going on here right and that's just the analytics taking a while to catch up to the experience of people who've been doing the sport for a long time so mm-hmm. i think that in addition to wanting to you know adopt a tone and an openness and a you know, willingness for conversation that will be persuasive to people. I also think that if we want to like accelerate our understanding of the sport, looking at people who view it through an old school lens and trying to see like, what do they understand about baseball or football or basketball that I don't understand that, you know, with some measurement and some rigor could actually be something like that's just a better way to try to have inquiry. So mm-hmm. that's part of why I've been very frustrated by this whole thing. Cause it's just like, to your point, skip all of this fighting nonsense and get to the mm-hmm. part where you both realize that you have something to bring to the table that can help us, you know, understand the sport better. And hopefully when you come to the table together, you are mindful of the parts of that project that might be, you know, bilking the running back out of getting a a check because like that guy's getting his head bashed in every day so like you know let's focus up everyone and 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 stop being so smarmy and i say that as a person who's quite sarcastic and i know that i i I verge i steer i sometimes drive with great purpose and speed into that (laughs) into that Mm -hmm. territory so again i'm i am far from perfect here but like come on let's yeah let's 
do it. Let's be a little more, you know, thoughtful about this stuff, I think. And there are times when baseball and baseball media members and baseball fans can certainly learn from those other sports, too. Sure. Even if it's not something analytics related, we could certainly learn from their examples. But it's just when I listen and read so much about NBA scoring, it just it reminds me of 2019 when we were talking about, are there too many homers? Is this right. too much of a good thing? Right. Has it gone too far? Is this spoiling everything for people? And yeah, usually when something swings too much in one direction, then you want it to swing a bit back in the other direction. Yeah. And then maybe you have to make some sort of change. We've gone through that cycle over and over and over again. And so many sports, I just want someone to compile all the literature and just yeah. uh, send over a nicely collated report. Like, uh, here's what you need to know about uh, what happens when your sport runs off the rails a little bit or when you're right. undergoing a period of change and conflict and controversy. Yeah. Here's what's worked in the past. Here's what hasn't. Here are yeah. the mistakes you can avoid repeating. Yeah. That'd be yeah. great. Yeah, <laughs> it would be great. It okay. won't happen, but it, it would be great. Well, after we recorded, Jerry DePoto did one more minor thing. He gave a minor league contract to Nick Solak, who was one of the subjects of the outro on our last episode. As I mentioned then, Solak last season became the first player ever to get into a major league game for more than one team in the same season without making a single plate appearance for either. So here's hoping that that streak won't continue, that he will not only make the Mariners and get into a game, but get to hold a bat in that game at the plate while he's at it. Another thing that happened after we finished recording. Slightly bigger news. It was reported that John Angelos has agreed to sell the Orioles for $1.725 billion. The buyers will be, unsurprisingly, a couple of billionaires and billionaires who made their money in private equity, which is not the same as saying that the Orioles are going to be owned by a private equity company. Presumably, they will just be owned by people who made their money in private equity, which is an important distinction. These guys almost can't be worse than John Angelos. One of the billionaires, David Rubenstein, is is a Baltimore native, an Orioles fan. The hope is that he will look at this less like a money-making venture than as an opportunity to win with this baseball team. Pending further reporting, pending actual results, I would say there's some reason for cautious optimism, at least relative to the status quo. Speaking of the status quo, this sale may help explain why the Orioles have been so inactive this offseason. There's no timetable for the sale, so I don't know that that will change anytime soon. Personally, I'd like to think that John Angelos was so chastened by our recent scolding in multiple Orioles rants that he decided to sell the team. You're welcome, O's fans. We did it. And you know what you can do? Support Effectively Wild. It won't even cost you $1.75 billion. Yes, you're thinking, I would love to support the podcast, but how would I do such a thing? Well, you just go to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Drew W., Rob Myroon, Scott Hughes, Austin S., and Mike. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, one of which we just published this week, as Meg mentioned, prioritized email answers, potential podcast appearances, playoff live streams, signed books, discounts on merch, and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, never fear. You can contact us via email, send your questions and comments to podcast at Fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow 
follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Romantic, pedantic, and hypothetical, semantic and frantic, real or theoretical. They give you the stats and they give you the news. It's a baseball podcast you should choose. Effectively Wild is here for you. About all the weird stuff that players do. Authentically strange and objectively styled. Let's play ball. It's effectively wild. It's effectively wild. It's effectively wild.